asking the right questions can greatly impact your future, especially when it comes to your finances. So if you're looking for a financial advisor you can trust, certified financial planner professionals are committed to acting in your best interest. That's why it's got to be a CFP. Find your CFP professional at letsmakeaplan.org. In recent weeks, we've really focused on some ways that listeners can boost their income. Uh, so whether that's through starting your own side business and growing your network like Hala talked about, or when we talked with local realtor Alan about diving into investing in real estate, well, what better way to test the waters? While you are away, your home could also earn extra income. That's right. Your empty space could be an Airbnb while you're traveling, because that's all you need to become an Airbnb host. It's a lot easier than you think, and you don't need to Airbnb your entire house. You could just host your extra spare room. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Supercharge your work decks with AI-powered Canva presentations. All you do is start with a prompt. You describe your, your presentation in a few words, and Canva presentations will generate captivating slides that you can then customize in seconds. Canva presentations are designed for every workplace and every department. Whether you work in sales, marketing, HR, ops, and more, Canva presentations can generate any deck you want for work. Sales decks, marketing presentations, onboarding plans, you name it. Any department can save time on any presentation with AI. Generate slides and seconds with Canva presentations at canva.com. Designed for work. Welcome to How to Money. I'm Joel. And I am Matt. And today, we're answering your listener questions. Yeah, man, as we are known to do, we've got a listener questions episode lined up for folks. This is an Ask How to Money episode. We've got five great ones, including a listener who's wanting to know if he should deploy the strategy that he's come up come up with in order to maximize the benefits that he's getting out of his credit cards. Uh, another listener is wondering if she should ditch this second car that she's got, a beloved second car, by the way. <laughs> this isn't uh, necessarily a car that she's wanting to get rid of, but we'll give our thoughts on that one. And then another listener is wondering how she should respond to some of those different folks who reach out and they're like, hey, I'll buy your home. I've got an all-cash offer. Uh, it'll happen fast. <laughs> what do you do about that? Yeah, we buy ugly houses. Those guys, you yeah. know? And, and, and there's like, their ilk has grown. And don't be offended. Not just ugly houses. Yeah. All houses. Even your semi-beautiful house. <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah, there's a lot of people are getting postcards, getting calls, getting texts. We'll talk about that, too. Real quick, Matt. You, Plus you, a couple other questions. Yeah. You mentioned credit cards, and uh, a question we're going to take on that in just a second. But a listener, Ryan, he reached out, and he had something helpful that we haven't really talked about on the show show that he mentioned to us and, and we felt like we should relay his finding. Well, one, he said that in the Pacific Northwest where he lives, Winco is like the Aldi or Lidl equivalent. Oh, really? Yeah. Winco. So he's like, I don't have Lidl never or, or Aldi where I live. And so that's where I go to save money at the grocery store. I've never been to a Winco. I can't vouch for it. Ryan says it's good. I'm going to trust him. And okay. I feel like we should... Yeah, let, let people know in the great right. P&W. Ryan, reach out to you personally? I don't, I don't think I... I yeah, he, no, he reached out to us via email. Oh, I must have missed it. Yeah. So, well, sometimes they fall through the cracks. Mm. Uh, I know that happens... In spam. To, well, that is true. Yeah. yeah. 
It I does. feel like they fall through the, your cracks more than they do mine. They do. Because I'll respond and you're like, what the heck? I didn't even see that. <laughs> yeah. Well, so big, yeah. Okay, it, it, I'm not, again, I'm not sure. Haven't been to Winco, but it's, it sounds like it's going to be a money saving. Sounds like a winner. Store. Another thing Ryan mentioned. A winning company. And this definitely bears repeating. I don't know if we've talked about it before, but the way credit cards code different purchases, the way Amex or Visa will code something that directly impacts the kind of rewards that you're going to get based on that purchase. And so the way they code specific retailers or companies, right? So when you shop at Walmart, even if you're buying only groceries, it doesn't matter if you use your Amex Blue Cash Preferred trying to snag that 6% because, hey, I'm buying groceries. No, 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 no. It has to be at a grocery store as approved or as coded Mm -hmm. by Amex, right? And so Walmart doesn't it, qualify as that. It, well, it's considered a, it's considered to be a superstore, right? Like the big WalMarts or the big Targets, they don't qualify. You don't, you're not going to get that six percent on the Blue Cash Preferred, or is it three percent on the blue on the the Blue Cash Everyday? Yes. Um, so yeah, you can. So the different, I know the different uh, credit card companies. If you go digging for it, you can find some of the different uh, retailers that they've highlighted, or specifically in this case, grocery stores. But otherwise, a lot of it's trial and error. Yeah, you got to <laughs> like, look and see. You just literally look back at your statement and see whether or not you got that 6% at Winco or whatever regional discount grocery store that you yeah. might prefer. Yeah. One other thing worth mentioning, like when you're filling up gas at a grocery store, exactly. that's another time when you are unlikely to get the the higher rate at a gas station that you normally get with one of those gas station cards. Like what Costco's is 4%, I think on gas and Sam's Club Sam's is Club's got 5%, 5% on mm-hmm. gas. So if you're using one of those, but you're filling up at Kroger, you're not going to get that extra bonus cash back. And so you got to fill up at a Chevron right. or what's another one? Or at the Costco itself. Racetrack. Yeah, 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 exactly. But if you're, so that, that's just interesting. Word to the wise, just because you're getting gas doesn't mean you're getting the gas cash back mm-hmm. that you're hoping you get. Yeah, so that's a great tip. Look at look at how well, things are coded. Yeah. And by the way, so you mentioned Aldi. I, I saw, so our local news email blast that goes out every day, they had like some sort of poll in there about Atlanta's favorite grocery stores. And guess who wasn't at all, like even in the top 10 anywhere. I, I like I looked over it multiple times thinking, surely I'm overlooking my beloved Aldi. And it wasn't in there. There's no way. Because they put Lidl on there. They, and Lidl Aldi's bigger at, than Lidl here. Lidl was at the very bottom. I think it literally came in, in like eighth or ninth place. And then, well, they had an other. And the other was substantially more than Lidl. Okay. So maybe... Aldi's Maybe that's where Aldi falls in. I, I don't know. I felt a little. I felt like I was like ready to fight. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> you want to see Aldi get slighted? Folks need to check out Aldi. It's such an affordable place. You have fewer options, so there's less decision fatigue. Yeah. And I guarantee that you're gonna. You, I mean, you will spend thirty percent less by going to an Aldi versus something like a Kroger or Winn Dixie. Matt or, guarantees it. I guarantee. Yeah. And if you don't, you can get a <laughs> refund from him by emailing it's him not, directly. It's not twice as nice. It's thrice as nice. <laughs> Joel will spot the difference. That's right. I, we got your back. All right, well, Matt. Let's move on. Let's get to our listener questions but first let's mention the beer we're having on this episode this one is called spring thrills it's an ipa by pizza port brewing out pizza of port carlsbad california this mm-hmm. one uh, comes to us again from our our good friend joel thank you joel for donating this one and I'm, sh- I'm sure he picked this one because the label it's surfing it's sur- yeah it's, it's spring thrills but the picture is just a guy surfing mm-hmm. and joel he's a surfer he loves to surf yep it's just one of his favorite things to do kook slams it's one of the things him and i <laughs> both share yes <laughs> i'm watching folks get slammed by the waves it's one of our pastimes yeah for folks who have a money question and they want us to take it on a future ask htm episode we'd love to hear it just go to howtomoney.com slash ask simple instructions there so you can record your voice memo get it our way so we can take it hopefully next uh, in the next couple of weeks mm-hmm. but all right let's get to 
our first question of this episode, Matt. This one is about rental real estate and hiring someone to help you out. Hi, Joel and Matt. This is Malia from Western Washington. I just listened to your episode number 647 about real estate investing, and I have a question that you got very close to answering, but not quite. We're planning to rent our home. It's our first house because we're moving out of state, but we hope to come back someday. Additionally, we bought our home for about half of what it's now valued at. We literally could not buy it today. It was certainly a fixer-upper when we purchased it, and we've made many improvements, but I suspect some fixing is still coming down the pipeline. In our case, where we will be about 800 miles away, would you suggest having a company manage it for us, despite the cost? I'd love to hear your thoughts. Thanks. Yeah, so Malia, we almost answered your question, but we'd like to leave people hanging just a little bit. You can't uh, give them everything all at once. Yeah, yeah. it incentivizes uh, additional great question submissions <laughs> like this. And by the way, Malia is in Washington, so Malia, make sure you're checking out, what was it, Winco? If, oh, uh, yeah. If you haven't been to a Winco, but I'm sure, I mean, come on, I'm, I'm sure Malia's crushing no, she's it. she's been there. Uh, but you are not alone in not being able to afford the home that you currently own if you were to put it on the market today. I feel like a lot of folks are experiencing that because home price appreciation has been insane, especially over the past several years. The average homeowner has gained around $100,000 in home equity just since the beginning of the pandemic. So imagine a generous benefactor taking uh, about $33,000, hiding it away in your attic for the past three years. <laughs> That's essentially what the market has done uh, for the for the average homeowner. But at the same time, you know, this, this does make it really tough out there for all the folks who want to be homeowners who are looking for that first property, many of whom who they've either gotten priced out of the market or they're having to change some of their parameters or having to maybe to look a little bit further out of town in order to be able to afford that work. Certainly bummed to see that. But our question today specifically has to do with turning that primary residence into a rental and how yeah. to go about that. Which you and I, we've always said for a long time that that is one of the easiest ways for a lot of people to get into the rental property game because it means typically when you buy a rental property, you save up 25% to put down. But if you're buying another primary residence and renting out the place that you've been living in right for the past couple of years or something like that, you only have to save up 20%. You get better, better terms on that next primary purchase. It just depends on like, well, does this property make sense as a rental property or not? Mm-hmm. And, but but that's how I got into it, Matt. That's it was renting out my first house, moving into another one. Then two years later, oh, I know it. Renting out that house and then moving into another one it helped you move. Yeah. Both of times. <laughs> <laughs> but that is just such a, a clutch way for a lot of people to get into it. If you're like, I, I'm overwhelmed, how do I do it? Mm-hmm. That's a, a, a really smart saving up for that next down payment um, while you're living in that house. But let's talk about property managers. Should you try to manage this property long distance? I would say this, if you owned a few different rental properties and you'd been doing it for years, maybe we would have given you the green light to try it and see how it goes. But we we really believe that self-managing is a great way to start. And once you have systems in place, proximity to the property becomes less important. I've had to deal with property issues when I've been out of town and it used to be a pain in the butt. I used to feel like I had to be at the property every time to meet a contractor or to even for minor fixes. But now I know who to call and I have my tenants let those people in and I can get stuff taken care of without being on site. So it's possible to manage a property without being in close proximity, but it might not be ideal given that this is your first rodeo. Yeah. And with Malia specifically, I mean, it sounds like she's had a good amount of experience dealing with some home repairs, maybe some renovations. Uh, so she she might actually have a good number of folks that she can count on to handle any work at the house. But the fact is that she, 
I mean, Malia, you're going to be on the other side of the country. <laughs> so it's a different calculation. I think most issues like repairs and scheduling work, you can do that from afar. But what if your tenants break their lease and you've got an unscheduled vacancy that's costing you money every single week, every single day? that you don't have someone in there. And the fact is, even if you have tenants who are there for an entire year, if you're managing it yourself, like you're still looking at having to pay for a plane ticket, rent a car, then pay for lodging just to show up for a couple of days, you know, while your fingers are crossed, hoping that you're going to actually find somebody. Right. <laughs> so this is why it probably makes sense to, to hire a manager in your specific case. Not only does that sound costly, it sounds stressful. So exactly. if, you're, if you're planning on visiting every once in a while anyway, you stay with a friend, you come into town every three three to six months, then maybe you can kind of do it and see how it goes. But even still, I think it makes sense in all likelihood to hire a professional property manager who knows what he or she is doing and have that person kind of be in charge of that unit for you. Yeah. I'll, this makes me think of the previous home that we that was our primary residence. We actually purchased it as it was a rental. And so the couple who owned the house, they actually were living in France. And that's exactly what, what they did. They didn't have friends kind of looking after the property, but her dad. So they used to be local and her dad was still local and they managed the property. And so obviously that would be something you would want to make sure that you arrange ahead of time. It needs to be a very clear conversation, but yeah. I feel like that could be... That you got to talk about whether you pay them or not too, because they might not want to yeah, do it for free. Exactly. But you know, again, if you're going to be visiting your parents, in, in that case, it could possibly make sense. It could be a way for you to maybe test the waters before going through the, the steps of actually finding a property manager. Okay. So let's say it is time though to find a property manager, which I think in all likelihood it is. If you know other real estate investors in the area, you can ask for referrals so that you can vet a few. And I think you want to interview at least two, probably three or four people before you kind of uh, decide who you want to be managing your property. This is a big deal, right? And you want to make sure they're going to treat it in a similar way that you treat your property and that you would treat your tenants. And so, yeah, uh, real estate agents are a place to turn. Uh, typical rate, by the way, uh, for a property manager is half of first month's rent when they find a new tenant for you and 10% of the monthly rent amount after that. But don't just compare the fees, right? I'd ask to speak to a couple of folks who have used that property manager for at least two years, right? Ask them, have they been happy with the service? And remember, you're interviewing this person kind of like to work for you. So be nice, but treat those those combos kind of like a fact-finding mission to see how they would treat your rental and mm-hmm. how on the ball they're going to be when it comes to finding great tenants and collecting rent and you know managing vacancy to keep it to a minimum and keeping your home in good shape overall too. So I think uh, hiring a property manager could be the best thing that ever happened to you in a lot of ways, taking a whole lot of stress off your plate. Or you might find that it's not worth the money at all because they don't take care of it nearly as well as you would. That's right. And by the way, the fact that you are planning to come back to the home, Malia, it means it's definitely worth holding on to because, you know, based on the fact that you've seen massive appreciation, that probably means that this is an up and coming part of town that you're probably really excited about and worried to move back there's a good chance that, you, that you're that you going to have the same values, right? Like you're going to still be drawn to the same things that drew you to buy that home in the first place. But honestly, even if you change your mind and you decide that landlording isn't for you, like it still makes sense to hang on to that property for three years and hopefully continue to see appreciation during the interim. And I say three years because you have to have occupied a house for two out of the past five years in order to not have to pay capital gains when the time comes to sell that house. And so hanging on to it, it makes sense because it just gives you some more time. It buys you some time. It allows you to see what your options are 
maybe mortgage rates will continue to drop and maybe the market is going to really heat back up in the next year or two. Who knows? It might, <laughs> but it's always just nice to have additional options. Uh, but again, since you're going to want to live in it again someday and there's a likely chance that you'll be coming back, renting it out for the time being is a, a really smart move. Yeah, it makes me think of my friend, John Adams, not the former president of the United States, but uh, <laughs> not just the second president. An awesome dude. Who's Was he a- the second second yeah, yeah that's right so. yeah, yeah. Uh, but just an awesome dude who lives here in atlanta and he's given me lots of great advice over the years about investing in real estate and he emailed me the other day and he told me hey i'm selling my super swanky house that i've been living in for the last few years i'm moving back into a rental property why am i doing this to avoid capital gains tax and these are the kind of things like <laughs> this is what's cool about real estate nice. is he can you can move back into a house even if let's say uh malia rents it out for four years moves back into it then for two years boom then you can sell it and avoid capital gains so real estate is just so flexible in so many ways and i love it's flexible if you're flexible if you're flexible <laughs> exactly exactly well, that's why people do live in flips remember yeah. when we talked to oh, yeah. carl about that on the show that seems like an empty nester kind of move yeah. to, <laughs> i know to be honest if i, I like, told if i told kate we were moving back into one of our houses that we moved from with four kids, I don't think she's going to be down with <laughs> no, that. No, but maybe when you're an empty nester. And that's the thing. Like, yeah. I love John, that idea. John is, is retired. Is like, he, like he's in boom. his 70s. And there this is go. something that he's doing because he's just that savvy when it comes to real estate. And I he's like that. willing to put himself through a little bit of pain to do the right thing to avoid <laughs> those taxes. So, all right. We've got more questions to get to on this episode, of course, including one about when do you start spending in retirement? How do you kind of make the change from saver to spender? We'll talk about that and more right after this. Asking the right questions can greatly impact your future, especially when it comes to your finances. So if you're looking for a financial advisor you can trust, certified financial planner professionals are committed to acting in your best interest. They are committed to high ethical standards and even had to pass a rigorous exam before they could become a CFP professional. They offer financial planning and services that take a more comprehensive view of your financial and personal circumstances and are customized for your needs. Certified financial planner professionals can offer advice on a wide range of issues like reviewing your investment portfolio's allocation, handling an inheritance, rolling over a company retirement plan, building education savings, and so much more. That's why it's got to be a CFP. Find your CFP professional at letsmakeaplan.org. I'm guessing that a lot of listeners are starting to solidify their summer travel plans. We always like to get the families together, Matt, for a week at the beach every single summer. We've already got that trip to St. Simon's on the calendar. Pumped for that. But sometimes those vacations get expensive. So what better way to offset some of those costs than to have your home earning some money while you're away? That's right. Why let it sit empty when it could be earning extra income? It's the financially smart thing to do. So think it through. Maybe you've got some extra space in your home, or maybe you have an entire house to host. Or maybe you're just going on vacation and your home is sitting empty. In every case, you can Airbnb it. You already have the space, so it won't be a huge adjustment. I mean, the way I see it, if you're not using your space, you have two options. You can let it just sit there empty, or you do some optimizing and make some money off it. Really, if you think about it, you already have an Airbnb. You just need to start using it. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at Airbnb.com slash host. And now a word from the show's sponsors at Betterment. Do you want your money to dream big? Do you want your money to be a total self-starter? Are you annoyed that your money doesn't work hard enough? Don't worry. Betterment is here to help. Betterment is the automated investing and savings app that makes your money hustle. Their automated technology is built to help maximize returns, meaning when you invest with Betterment, your money can auto-adjust as you get closer to your goal. 
Rebalance if your portfolio gets too far out of line and your dividends are automatically reinvested. That can increase the potential for compound returns. In other words, your money is breaking a sweat while you can be breaking bread. You'll never picture your money the same way again. Betterment, the automated investing and savings app that makes your money hustle. Visit Betterment.com to get started. Investing involves risk. Performance is not guaranteed. We're back from the break. We'll get to that question about flipping the switch, going from saving to spending your nest egg. But before we get to that one, let's hear from a listener who is thinking about implementing a, a potentially risky credit card strategy. Hi, Matt and Joel. It's Peter from Boston. I would like your guys' opinion on a new credit card strategy I'm considering. My wife and I both have excellent credit and we pay our credit cards off in full and on time every month. I just got a new credit card from Wells Fargo that has 2% cash back, a bonus for a certain amount of spending, and also 0% APR for 15 months. What I'm thinking of doing is taking all or most of our expenses and charging them on that card, waiting the full 15 months to pay it off, and then taking the money that I would have been paying towards it every month to pay it off and putting that in a high yield savings account or maybe even some short-term CDs or treasury bills that would mature before the payment date on the card, and then pay it in full after the 15 months is up so I don't accumulate any interest. And then over the 15 months, from my rough calculations, we would have earned you know, hundreds or even a thousand or more in interest from having that money invested instead of going to pay off the card. So please let me know what you think of that strategy, if there's anything to look out for. Obviously, we would not touch the money, just have it in the account earning interest over that whole time frame. I love your guys' show. I love all the advice that you've given me and helped me with over the years. Thank you so much for all you do and cheers. Matt, Peter sounds like a, a hyper optimizer. He does. By the way, he said cheers and he's from, did he say he's from Boston? Oh, do you think he? Uh, maybe is, he's a fan. <laughs> <laughs> I, I mean, who doesn't love that? Dude, show? I have I have fond memories of sitting as a little kid. My dad was really into Cheers as I, like literally back when it was on TV. Yeah, and I remember Sam Malone, like in, Heck yeah. in, in crew. I remember being Ted Danson, Woody Harrelson. Oh, that yeah. was a good cast. It was, it was solid. It was a good show. <laughs> uh, but like, I mean, that's in your vein too. You're you're like you like to optimize things to the nth degree. Oh, I thought you, I thought you meant Cheers. Is oh, that vein. too. <laughs> yes, no, I am an optimizer. And when I yeah, when when Peter's question came in. I was like, yes, a man after my, my own heart. You're like, I thrive on stuff like this. Well, and we, we, of course, we love the idea of opening up a new credit card in order to score a bonus and better rewards. Like, we're, we're all in on that, right? We talk about uh, all the time using credit cards well, and that is one of the things you can do to kind of, as long as you use credit cards properly and you pay your balance off on time and in full, that can actually help you in your, in your pursuit of financial independence. Most people are going to benefit significantly from having three-ish cards. And I say three-ish because three is a good number. Four might be better for some. But like, you know, it's easy enough to remember when to use which card without things getting out of hand if you have three or four. Some of these, if you go overboard, you might have 10, 11, 12. You might, you have to be organized Mm -hmm. at the same time if you're going to go in that direction, right? But you got to pay attention to make sure you're getting enough value out of each card and that your spending isn't getting out of hand because of a proliferation of credit cards too. Sure. But with Peter's attention to detail, I feel like he could be the kind of guy who who has a dozen yeah. credit cards. Yeah. But he's trying to take things one step further, right? Like he wants to take advantage of the 0% intro rate that this new card is offering. And so is that smart? I mean, 
I don't think it's dumb necessarily, but it is possible that it might not be worth the additional hassle. This question, it does make a, a bit more sense in an era of solid savings rates, because a few <laughs> years ago, it would have been completely silly, yes. right? But now, I mean, I rates... can eke out half a percent. Should I do this? <laughs> exactly. Like, well, probably not. No, there's, there's a legit decent rate. Uh, and when you have that on thousands of dollars within a completely safe and liquid account that's in the 5% range, you're going to earn a decent amount in interest. Uh, and so, Peter, you're right. Saving those dollars instead of forking them over to the credit card company over these 15 months, while you're not paying off that balance, it gives you an arbitrage play of, you know, basically maybe seven, 800 bucks in your favor. That's a decent return. Uh, but it kind of comes down to a number of factors. You need to make sure that you are approaching it correctly. Yeah. So it kind of makes me think of buy now, pay later, Matt, which is something we advise against. And a lot of people say, why do you advise against that? Because you're just splitting things up into installments and you're not paying interest on it. It's because of the behavioral side of things. And it causes people to spend in ways that they otherwise wouldn't. And so that's something that Peter's going to have to be conscious of too. Because if he has a history of overspending, of racking up credit card debt that he couldn't pay off, We'd say this strategy was just too risky. It's not worth chancing it, right, for this slightly arbitrage return mm -hmm. over the course of a year plus. And so, yeah, if this is a balance transfer, if you're shuffling around debt that you'd accumulated but you couldn't pay off, I would have a totally different reaction to this. But if you're the kind of person who's never carried a balance and you're just incredibly uh, astute in your attention to detail, and this is just purely an optimization strategy, and you're going to set Google Calendar reminders and all that kind of stuff yeah. to make sure you do everything on time, and it sounds like fun to you, then I feel like we can give the green light on this. I feel like this is something that Peter can handle if he so chooses. It's sort of like, it makes me think of if you've got a friend who, yeah, maybe they used to be an alcoholic, maybe they used to drink a little bit too much, and you know that there's a sweet beer fest coming up, right? Like this is a beer fest where they're going to have some of the, the choicest beers from all around the world. And you want to go with a friend. Well, I'm probably not going to invite that friend because yeah. it might be playing with fire for yeah. him, right? Like it might challenge their sobriety. Yeah, you don't want to do that. Exactly. It's, it's too slippery of a slope. And that's how we kind of view using credit cards in a more optimal way with someone who has had a history of overspending. Yeah, and it's different to say, hey, okay, I'm going to start using and spending in order to generate better cash back and stuff like that. But when you're playing with the 0% interest rate game to try to, to arbitrage it, that's like a level deeper and the potential for error can be even more catastrophic. It's kind of like, yeah, it's graduating up in levels yeah. of complexity because you've got essentially, I mean, it's, it's, we're talking about not just one statement's worth of spending. We're talking about 15 statements worth of spending. Yeah. It could really add up. And we should also mention that it wouldn't be smart to do this if you don't have a robust emergency fund. If you don't have much cash in the bank, this is certainly too risky of an endeavor. Um, you, you know, you, you build up the amount of money that you would have put towards those purchases and instead you're saving that up. But if that's the only cash you have and you actually do have an emergency come along, you're you're going to be tempted to, to tap that money, to tap sure. those funds. And then you're stuck with a bill, potentially, that you're, you don't have a way of, of actually paying down at the end of those 15 months. But uh, yeah, I agree. He, like He's got to be really buttoned up in order to avoid financial troubles here. That could come along. If he didn't dot all of his I's, if he didn't cross all of his T's. Because truly, if you forget to pay off that balance by the time this promotional period is over, you're going to start accruing interest on any unpaid balance, not just on any new purchases. So again... It's definitely possible. And from a principal standpoint, I want to say 100% yes, but you just got to make sure that you're going about things the right way. And, and certainly if you do choose to go this path, Peter, I, I would probably pay the balance off even just a few full days early, <laughs> just in case. I even do that now, yeah. month to month. I always pay it 
a full business day prior to the due date because they got the little little calendar drop down with a little square around the date. And for whatever reason, I don't know if it's like superstition or what, but I always like to give myself a little bit of buffer and always mark the day right before yeah, that date. I don't want to chance it. I no. don't want to chance it. And you definitely don't want to chance this. So definitely pay it off in advance yeah. just to, to make sure you've got plenty of wiggle room. And the other crucial aspect, by the way, that he needs to consider is the damage it could potentially do to his credit score because an extreme balance that he's racking up on that card because of the 0% APR for an extended period of time, like let's say he's got a $15,000 balance at the end of this 15 months on an $18,000 credit line, that could do a whole lot of damage. That could bite him in the butt in regards to his credit utilization. That goes through the roof. Mm-hmm. That brings his score down. And especially if you're looking to make a major purchase with and, and take a loan out for that major purchase, buying a home, something like that, it could impact in a massive way. This could be this could be uh, cheap, not frugal, and it could oh, yeah. really come back to cost you a lot more money than you're making in this like tiny little arbitrage that you're trying to pull off. So this is something, Matt, that I probably would have done like 10 years ago, but I'm not really willing to jump through the hoops now to arbitrage or make a little bit of money. So I, I mean, but I, I again, like I said, I would have done it 10 years ago in all mm-hmm. likelihood. So it, to each their own, there are different phases in life. And so I think if Peter really wants to jump through the soup, if he's taking into consideration all of these other things and he can meet the parameters so that he's not being charged any interest or fees and he's coming out five, six, seven hundred dollars richer, go for it. That's right. Yeah. So Peter, best of luck to you. And by the way, if you, if this is something where you are really buttoned up, you're really organized, you pay attention to the details and you are looking to take advantage of some of the sweet offerings other the chase sapphire preferred they just up their bonus from 60,000 to 80,000 points that is pretty sweet and so we'll make sure to, to link to that one in our show notes yeah. for this episode always one of our favorite cards and in the they just sweeten the pot that's right but let's hear from our next listener and he has a question about retirement he wants to know when he's going to be able to start tapping those funds let's hear it Hi, Matt and Joel. Daniel from Greensboro. I'm going to ask a question that I have not heard discussed on all the money podcasts I listen to. I'm 51 and we're retiring June 2023 with a full pension. My wife still works and it's stable. The only debt we have is a mortgage at 2.25%. We we live below our means. We have about three months of emergency funds, but that doesn't really matter too much because of a stable pension. We can live off my salary if she loses her job. My 401k investment is 6% with a 5% match, putting 17% in my Roth 401k. I won't be able to contribute to my employee 401k or Roth 401k, so I'll set up a Roth IRA after retirement. I have about $60,000 in investments, all indexed in total stock market funds with treasury I-bonds of $10,000. You two do a good job helping other people save and invest, so my question is, when can I start spending my funds? When can I actually withdraw my investment and to enjoy my money? Thank you. All right, sounds like it's party time for Daniel. It's Matt. true. Yeah, I, which I, next month rock it is. on, man. Yeah, congrats <laughs> on retiring next month, and it's a age of fifty-one. Like that is really impressive, and the work they've done to build up that nest egg and a, a diverse nest egg too is impressive. So, and and it just um, yeah, I, I don't want to say much on this, but coming up with a plan to keep yourself busy, Daniel, pursuing activities, hobbies, and relationships or volunteer opportunities. This is, I think, going to help you enjoy your upcoming retirement. A lot of people, they idealize what retirement's going to look like, and then they get there and they're like, oh, what do I do? And, mm, yeah. and maybe that first month is great. You're relaxing. And then you're like, I 
I'm at a loss. I don't have any, I don't know what my purpose is anymore. And so I think knowing what your purpose is going to be when you do uh, leave work next month is important. But it sounds like you've already got the essential, essential expenses taken care of with this recurring pension payment you're going to be receiving. Your wife's salary is just gravy, which is amazing. And, and so now it's time to start thinking big about what you want retirement to look like for you guys, which which really, I think, means asking a lot of big questions. Ooh, yeah, yeah. It's, it's less a matter of here is exactly when you can withdraw from where, but it's more like, well, what do you want retirement to look like? For instance, like how much longer does your wife, uh, how, how much longer does she want to keep working? Because it's nice that she doesn't have to, but losing that income might mean cramping your lifestyle. It, it might mean tapping those dollars that are earmarked for retirement in order to keep it up. And by the the way, you mentioned opening a Roth IRA once you uh, no longer have access to contribute to your 401k. Well, you only are going to have access to contribute to an IRA as long as your wife is working because your pension income does not qualify you to be able to contribute to an IRA. So keep that in mind as well. But as far as the different lifestyle questions, like do you see yourselves traveling internationally for a month each year? Well, if so, that nest egg will likely need to grow in order to fund all of those all those fun trips. Or, you know, maybe your lifestyle, maybe your budget is just going to stay the same. Is it your goal to uh, give a certain amount of money to to your kids? Or with whatever money you have left over, are you just planning to give it to charity? There are so many different goals here that you could potentially set for yourselves. There's, there's so many options. And when you decide to tap those funds is going to largely depend on the role that that money is going to play. It, it truly does depend on what it is that you're seeking after and what you want your life to look like. Yeah. So there's definitely an introspection factor here yeah. and, and some work that, work that your wife, you and your wife need to do in order to kind of figure out, well, what does it look like and what is the point of this money? But it's also important to mention, Matt, that there is kind of, some of this money is under lock and key to a certain extent for a little while. It's, it's locked away for the better part of the next decade until you're 59 and a half for both your 401k and your IRA as well, unless you want to pay tax and penalty to take it out, which isn't ideal. And so, especially since this is money that's going to be necessary over three or probably even four decades, you don't want to touch it when you're going to have to pay the penalty mm-hmm. right before that 59 and a half age. And, and so hopefully your retirement dollars have grown, maybe doubled by then. That would be uh, par for the course, right? That would, that would make sense. It, that, 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 I would say that's probably, that's likely. The next goal would be then to hold off taking Social Security as long as you can if you remain in good health. But Social Security combined with your pension and then maybe even a paid off mortgage at that point, that means you can likely feel really comfortable spending a decent chunk of that nest egg between the ages of 59 and a half and 70. Uh, and, and so that's kind of how I would envision this money as bridging the gap for that decade. Unless that is you have significant giving goals, right? And, and then you probably don't want to tap most of that money. You want to make, make sure you uh, leave some of that invested for those giving endeavors that you have. And, and by the way, there are other ways to tap that money early, like a Roth conversion ladder or this thing called ESPP. It's uh, equal substantial payments, right? Uh, equal substantial payment plans. Something that like little, that, yeah. yeah. And so basically you can pull that money out penalty-free if you adhere to certain rigorous withdrawal methods. And we'll actually link to a post in our show notes that does a good job describing it and telling you how that works. There are ways of going about it. But it's helpful to know it's possible. But yes, even still, exactly. that might not be the best option. Exactly. And, and honestly, I, I feel like that there is a way to start drawing on that money once you are of age without it feeling like you're completely flipping a switch. Because going from saving to spending, it isn't like an on or off sort of thing. And I think there are ways for you to slow 
slowly kind of start making some withdrawals from those accounts once you're eligible without it feeling like you are completely depleting those funds where yeah. you're kind of just wading out there into, into the water as compared to just doing a, like a cannonball. <laughs> <laughs> uh, and the same thing with when it comes to like the lifestyle that you're going to lead as well. I think there are ways for you even now. I mean, you know, you've, you're a month out, but there are ways now for you to proactively start thinking about how it is that you want to, to spend your time. Yeah. But whether it's how you spend your time or how you spend your money, some retirees do find it hard to actually spend the money that they've saved. And in your case, you guys have been really prudent for a long time. You've saved wisely and, and you've stuck it out. You've got that baller pension. But we also want you to be able to enjoy that money that you've been able to amass. You know, that that 4% rule exists for a reason. We want to make sure that you're able to live into your much later years without running out of money. But even that, it's not perfect. Uh, it's not you're not going to be able to exactly pinpoint and determine exactly how much money you are going to be withdrawing every single year in order to have the exact right amount of money when you die. No yeah. one knows what that's actually going to be. Well, and at the same time, when you have guaranteed income, which a pension provides, and if that covers most of your essential needs, that make that, that means you have even more options at your disposal. The 4% rule is really about living solely off your portfolio. And so if you have other sources of income, like a pension, it, yeah, it means you have <laughs> just a lot more options when it comes to how and when you tap those funds. Exactly. You don't want to be too conservative for going life-changing experiences because you're pinching pennies, right? But you also don't want to become a, a spendthrift. And But I'm not really worried about Daniel going that route, considering how diligent he's been. So Daniel, there is no, no uh, I know Daniel's slam like, dunk. He's answer. like, I want to enjoy my money. Right. <laughs> Which I appreciate. I'm, I'm ready. He's like, I've done the hard work and now I do want to enjoy it. What if he blows and it all in like five years? <laughs> <laughs> I hope not. Daniel, what have you done? But even still, like if you if you no, don't I, I doubt move into a fancier that. house, you keep the house with the low mortgage, you you know, you make sure you're not outstripping that four percent rule by a massive amount. But I've even talked to my parents, like to in order to delay taking social security, taking six percent out of their portfolio a year makes more sense than tapping social security earlier because because of that guaranteed eight percent return that you get. So that is definitely one important factor in the equation. But then so are the personal goals. Lots to take into consideration here, but I feel like if anybody can hit the nail on the head, can spend without overdoing it, it's probably going to be Daniel. But Matt, we got a couple other questions to get to, including a listener who wants to know whether or not she should keep a car that she loves in her life. We'll get to that and more right after this. Asking the right questions can greatly impact your future, especially when it comes to your finances. So if you're looking for a financial advisor you can trust, certified financial planner professionals are committed to acting in your best interest. They are committed to high ethical standards and even had to pass a rigorous exam before they could become a CFP professional. They offer financial planning and services that take a more comprehensive view of your financial and personal circumstances and are customized for your needs. Certified financial planner professionals can offer advice on a wide range of issues like reviewing your investment portfolio's allocation, handling an inheritance, rolling over a company retirement plan, building education savings, and so much more. That's why it's got to be a CFP. Find your CFP professional at letsmakeaplan.org. I'm guessing that a lot of listeners are starting to solidify their summer travel plans. We always like to get the families together, Matt, for a week yeah, at the we beach do. every single summer. We've already got that trip to St. Simon's on the calendar. Pumped for that. But sometimes those vacations get expensive. So what better way to offset some of those costs than to have your home earning some money while you're away? That's right. Why let it sit empty when it could be earning extra income? It's the financially smart thing to do. So think it through. Maybe you've got some extra space in your home, or maybe you have an entire house to host. 
Or maybe you're just going on vacation and your home is sitting empty. In every case, you can Airbnb it. You already have the space, so it won't be a huge adjustment. I mean, the way I see it, if you're not using your space, you have two options. You can let it just sit there empty, or you do some optimizing and make some money off it. Really, if you think about it, you already have an Airbnb. You just need to start using it. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at Airbnb.com slash host. Spring cleaning is kind of a, an annual rite of passage. We've all got to do it. Minimize the junk that we have in our house. Emily and I, we just cleaned our closets out. It took hours, but it was so worth it. Now we've only got stuff in there that we love, and it's easier to find everything too. And so, you know, while cleaning your closets is helpful, well, there's something else you can do for your family this spring. Shopping for life insurance with Policy Genius, for example, is a really important part of your financial planning for the year. That's right. Yeah. And here is the thing that's important to remember because you might be thinking you don't need to check out Policy Genius because you've got a policy through work. But even if you have a life insurance policy through your job, it may not offer you enough protection for your family's needs and it may not follow you if you leave your job. With Policy Genius, you can find life insurance policies that start at just $292 per year for $1 million of coverage. Some options offer same day approval and avoid unnecessary medical exams. Policy Genius works for you, not the insurance companies, and that means they don't have an incentive to recommend one insurer over another, so you can trust their guidance. Save time and money and provide your family with a financial safety net using Policy Genius. Head to policygenius.com to get your free life insurance quotes and see how much you could save. That's policygenius.com. All right, we are back from the break and we've got two more questions to get to, including a question from a listener who is wanting to know how to respond to those folks who are reaching out about buying her home like with an all cash offer. But before we talk about homes, let's talk about cars. Hello, my name is Amy and I live in Northern California. I appreciate the educational and non-judgmental approach your podcast takes. After listening to a few episodes, I've been thinking about my finances in a totally different way. On one of your episodes, you guys talked about if you drive your car less than 7,500 miles per year, insurance rates might qualify for a reduction. I started working from home last year, which significantly lowered my annual mileage. So after listening to that episode, I thought, why not? I called my insurance company and now save $20 per month on insurance premiums. Thank you for that. After listening to Money Gears, I'm considering selling my second car, a Mini Cooper Countryman, super fun, to accelerate gear three. I have another vehicle that is paid off. The money not spent on the second car would be diverted to the debt keeping me in gear three. I can afford the car. It's fun to drive. The interest rate is low, and it's nice having a backup vehicle. My backup car is a 2007 minivan, a reliable car, but it makes me feel old driving it. My son is also driving, so it's nice not sharing a vehicle. But my inner voice, which now includes your voices, is saying getting financially stable isn't always sexy and will take sacrifice. In this case, mostly to my ego. What is exciting is the thought of being out of gear three in two years rather than six. If you have any confirming thoughts on this, I could use the push, though I think I know it needs to happen. Thanks. So a couple of things, Joel. I love that we're voices that are bouncing around in her head now after only listening for <laughs> for a few episodes. Although at some point she's going to end up in a straitjacket <laughs> in a padded room. And uh, she's I hear the voices. No, they won't stop talking to I, me about I, saving money. I love that we are challenging her. But like she said, in a non-judgmental way, that's that's what we're all about that's here. Goal. And by the way, she mentioned her Mini Cooper, which totally makes me... Th- Did you ever watch The Italian Job? Uh, uh, yeah. Well, like Edward, the, I've watched everything with Edward Norton. The Bank Heist movie. So love him. Um, well, one of the things she meant... 
I love that she shared a money win too. So it's like she's uh, already taking yeah. action and she's trying to take a lot of action and she's already done some low hanging fruit. Like 20 bucks a month though is meaningful because we've talked about the rule of 173 in a recent How to Money newsletter. 20 bucks on its face doesn't sound like a whole lot. No, it doesn't. But when you're saving that every single month, the rule of 173 says that over the course of a decade, if you invest that money instead, that's going to be worth $3,460. So kudos to Amy. She's doing awesome stuff. That's not chump change. And uh, yeah, so you're, since you're relatively new here, we should give you our thoughts on cars. Matt and I, we view them radically diff- different than most people do. And it's been our goal to bring down our vehicle costs as much as possible in our own individual families. We want to see more how to money listeners ditching a car from their life, like having fewer rides, having fewer cars that they're paying for. Because it's not just about the cash that you get from selling that sweet Mini Cooper that you love. It's about the recurring costs that you're going to avoid, maintenance, insurance, depreciation. Mm -hmm. The longer it sits there in your life, the more it is going to uh, depreciate, go down in value, and you're eating that uh, from a financial perspective. So yeah, we are... We're, we're always going to preach the uh, fewer cars, smaller transportation budget sort of uh, uh, way of viewing things. Yeah. I mean, basically what you're getting at, Joel, is the total cost of car ownership. The average annual cost of that in this country, it's nearing $10,000 to own and maintain and run a vehicle. That is a lot of money. And yeah. granted, it's possible to bring some of these annual costs down. And you can do that by driving older vehicles because depreciation is a main factor in that overall cost of ownership. Uh, and so a way that you can avoid that is just by driving a much older car. Like a 07 minivan. That's a perfect sweet spot, right? Absolutely. There. I mean, oftentimes you're going to see the most depreciation in the first five years. So even anything that's even just five years old, you're going to not feel the impacts of a depreciation as much. Not going to hit you as hard. Um, exactly. And we're not sure how old your Mini Cooper is. Mini Cooper Countryman. So it's like the, the bigger version. Oh, yeah. Uh, but yeah, that car is leaking cash, even when it doesn't feel like it is. That's just what cars do to us, in addition to you actually having a car payment on that that car as well. But, you know, we, we understand like having a, a fun second car like this would be Honestly, it would be a reasonable decision if you were later, if you were further along within the money gears, you know, after you've had some years of debt pay down, you've built up some wealth, but we don't love the choice given where you are. You said that you're in money gear three, which means you've got some high interest rate debt in your life. Oftentimes that means credit cards and with credit card interest rates hovering around 20%, you are paying out the nose in interest. And honestly, that's what makes this such a difficult yep. car to, to, to hang on to exactly. when you're paying interest towards that, when you should be paying off some of that higher inter- higher rate interest debt. Yeah. And she also said, Matt, she said that she can afford this car. And I, I, don't, I don't mean this in a disparaging way, but the truth is, can you actually afford this car? It's not like it's in danger of getting repossessed or anything, of course, but in being able to make payments. Or, she's actually, she is making the payments yeah, on it. So. Or, but being able to make the payments or not being forced to sell, it doesn't necessarily mean that you can afford it, sure. right? And so, so much depends on what your goals are. And it seems like those are shifting, Amy, which is great. Like we love seeing that. Uh, we are of the belief that one of the best things money can buy is independence. And so if you're sacrificing quite a bit of that for a cute second car, that uh, that's certainly your prerogative, but it's not what we'd recommend. And so, I mean, what other awesome potential future splurges might you be missing out on by keeping this car in your life? Yeah. That's a good question because you are preventing something in the future by continuing to keep maybe that high interest rate debt around, by keeping this car around, and by taking a longer path towards more financial freedom in your life, not to mention the stress that you pile on top of it. So is that car worth all of those things. 
it's, now can you afford it? Right. <laughs> right. A lot of people say they can afford something, but the reality is they're not paying themselves first. They haven't been investing or saving and, and they still have debt linker in their life. And so my, it's hard. I don't know. Affordability is like a, a, an interesting word to use because, yeah, you might be able to make the payments, but can you really afford it when we're talking about trying to reach financial independence? That's right. Yeah. And she, she also mentioned she liked the idea of hanging on to it because her son's driving as well. And so they don't have to worry about somebody not having a car in the house. But what I'll say is that Kate and I, our family, we've been a one car family for 15 years now, and it has rarely been an issue. We just schedule it. You just talk about it a little bit. Or honestly, you can walk or bike. That's always an option. But there's also the ability to Uber and Lyft, which isn't something that you could do 15 years ago because it didn't exist. But it makes it so much easier these days. Literally, I'm going to Uber or catch a lift after we record this episode because I'm, I'm going to go to a meeting. No big deal. <laughs> totally doable. But Amy, something else to consider. You might want to take advantage of the fact that your mini, that it's actually gone up in value over the last couple of years. This is a phenomena that we're not likely going to see for years to come. Um, it's not quite at its peak like it was last year, about 16 months ago. I think that's kind of when the used car market was was at its peak. But it's when still hot. Prices were still climbing at that point. But man, get that sweet payday for a car that you don't necessarily need. Because ultimately, you summed up our views well. Getting your finances in ship shape, it is not a sexy endeavor. But you mentioned that the biggest hit that you'll take is to the ego. And I think it's worth that trade-off, which you can mentally power through. I like what you said too, Joel, about her goals shifting. It seems like she's got different priorities. And so align your spending, align what it is that you are going to do with your money moving forward with how it is that you value those things. It doesn't matter that you already own this car. That's the endowment effect, right? Like you feel... Or sunk cost fallacy. Or sunk cost, yeah. yeah. It, like in your mind, it's it's worth it more to you because of the, the kind of the emotional ties. But don't let the fact that you wouldn't make that purchase today keep you from selling it. Yeah. Well, it also makes me think, we, uh, Morgan Housel, who we've had on the show, we, we bring up quotes from him every now and again because he's just so smart. He used to be a valet back in college. And he talked about how when he was parking cars, the people driving the fancy cars, he didn't ever know what they look like or care about them he cared about the cool car like the ferrari or whatever it was that he was parking and a lot of people think oh if i get this car i'm gonna look cool and no that's just not how people perceive you people don't look at the person they look at the car itself and so nobody really makes that correlation between what you drive and how they think of you i also drive an old uh, honda minivan right so and and at times i've been self-conscious but i've really gotten over it over the years and have learned to care less and less about it because I'm funneling money on purpose into stuff that I care about a whole lot more. And that gets me excited. And it actually gets me energized to drive the old raggedy minivan. Yeah, it's a badge <laughs> uh, of honor as opposed yeah. to something that you're ashamed of or that, that makes you feel old. Exactly. But Matt, let's get to uh, our last question for this episode. This one is about all those pesky home buying calls and texts that we, that we all uh, get from time to time. Hi, Joel and Matt. This is Sandy from Massachusetts. I wanted to share that over the last two weeks, I've had no less than three postcards in my mailbox from individuals who want to purchase my home. And they tout how they will give a fair market price and there's no commission and they will take care of traditional closing costs. At any rate, I have no intention of selling as I'm happy where I am and I have one of those mortgages that are less than 3% interest rate. But I was always curious about whether or not this is ever a good financial move for a seller versus working with an established realtor. And from the person who is buying, 
you know, how is this a good financial move? I'm just curious and wondered if you could share your thoughts on that. Thanks so much. Bye-bye. All right, Sandy, thank you so much for that question. And we are so glad to hear that you've got that that sweet low rate under 3% uh, that you like where you are, where you're living. And so what's up with these vulture-like real estate buyers? Because uh, they're, you know, they often say they're going to pay fair market value. But it is worth it for them to make these offers because that's unlikely going to be the case. The only way to really know what the fair market value for your home is, is to actually list it, to actually allow a wide range of buyers to have a look at it and to let the market decide. That's how you figure out fair market value. Mm -hmm. They're willing to pay you fair what I decide is fair <laughs> <Yeah>. value, <laughs> uh, but most of these home buyers are looking for a bit of a deal. So it makes all the sense in the world for them to cast their net wide and to try to find a deal. Exactly. And we've talked about ways to lower your rent before on the show, Matt. As a tenant, you're trying to figure out what your landlord's pain points are. You're trying to alleviate those in hopes of a smaller monthly rent amount. And these postcard home buyers, or the text message or the phone call home buyers, the they're the ones who are incessantly trying to reach you yeah. to make an offer on your home. Got like five of those on my phone every single Always. day. It's it, unreal it, all the time. And and basically they're doing the same thing. They're trying to alleviate a point pain point too. But it often comes at the seller's expense. A lot of folks don't really know what their home is worth. They know what they paid for their home, and their eyes might get as big as saucers when someone reaches out offering to pay them a good bit of money to sell the property. But that doesn't mean that these people are paying fair market value. They're basically trying to make it sound like. I'm going to make it easy and I'm going to pay you a lot of money. But the truth is they're not going to pay you as much as somebody else would if you were to list it on the open market. I mean, almost to a T, almost yeah. always. You're but going they, to get some sort of uh, lowball offer. Exactly. But they, I mean, it likely will be easier. And that's the fee that you're paying is, yeah. the, is the convenience, basically. That's why they say like, we buy ugly houses. It's because yeah, like, hey, you don't have to do anything. Exactly. <laughs> exactly. So maybe you don't, you don't have, have to lift a finger. Up. You don't have to get it show. No worthy. paint job. None of that stuff, which makes it easier on you. But it also means it's going to be less profitable. Yeah. Basically, these are cold calls. And, you know, again, these folks are fishing. They're casting their net wide. Uh, and the ones doing it are often wholesalers. They're house flippers who can only make money if they're able to snag the home at a pretty drastic discount. Uh, and a lack of inventory is driving up these solicitations. These folks who are knocking on your... I've never had someone knock on my door. I, I made that up. I get a lot of te <laughs> text voicemails no, I haven't and, had that either. and letters, though. That would cross the line for me. I, I kind of feel like it would, too. But I would probably take it a little more seriously because I'm like, oh, wow, you're like right here. But I still <laughs> wouldn't do it. It's hard for investors to find deals given the current constraints of the market and, and, where, and where inventory is today. Uh, and so these folks are reaching out to see if, if they can make an emotional or if they can make an economic plea that might resonate with you as an individual. Uh, like, oftentimes, they're just hoping to snag a deal, uh, like one deal out of 500 postcards they send out or, or 1,000. Uh, it's not a, necessarily a high success rate, but that one sale can net them some meaningful returns. They're hoping there's one sucker in 1,000, basically, is what you're saying, which is true. And they're hoping that one idiot comes along <laughs> every now and again to sell them their house. And it's not necessarily... Like, I don't want to... As an individual, as like you still have the ability to make your own decisions. Like you still have agency to say yes or to say no. And to a certain individual out there, to them it might make sense because they are like, honestly, I know that this is a teardown. So yeah. sure, yeah, 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 I'll sell it to you. I mean, if you know and, that and it, you know they're paying you more than you can get sure. elsewhere, go for it. Exactly. But it's unlikely to be the case. It's not the case most of the time. That is not how these guys make money by paying too much for teardowns. And uh, I don't think you're planning on going down this path, Sandy. Sounds like you like your house, like where you're living. But to everyone else out there listening, hang up on these people. Don't call the number on the postcard. If they really want to buy your home, most of the time you'd be short-sighted to take their offer. 
yeah, they can get your money quicker, but it's going to be less money. And so, I don't know, at least talk to a trusted neighborhood agent first yeah, to see what they totally. might, what they think your house could sell for. Because the only time it might make sense, like you said, Matt, is if your home needs a ton of repairs, it might be a teardown. You're unwilling to do these things in order to list it. If it greases the wheels and makes it, makes it easy to do this thing and staging it and all that stuff isn't in the cards. But even still, I would say the insights of an agent would be helpful because they might uh, know something you don't know. And they might see that you're sitting on a gold mine because of the lot location whatever uh, and or the demand that's particularly high in your area and that you'd be shortchanging yourself to sell mm-hmm. to one of these like fly-by-night home buyers so um, it's they're not evil <laughs> but they are they're trying to make a buck at your expense that's for sure that's right man but sandy again we love that you've got one of those crazy low mortgages hang on to that thing forever mm-hmm. don't <laughs> don't pay it down early instead take any additional money that you might have and put it towards in, either investing or any other additional financial goals that you might have but joel let's go ahead and get back to the beer that you and i enjoyed this was a spring thrills this is an ipa by pizza port donated to us by our buddy Joel out there on the West Coast. What were your thoughts on this beer? So this is a West Coast beer, but to me, this was a perfect West Coast, East Coast combo. It was like a hybrid. Oh yeah? It was juicy, but it was piney and bitter at the same time. And so like some of those resiny notes too, like it was a little sticky. Yeah, I feel like in a good way. In my mind, that's why it had like West Coast West Coast IPA yes. written all over it. Um, in my mind, like the East Coast is like the sweet orange juice hazy juice yeah. bombs whatever whereas this but it had be, some juicy elements it wasn't so bitter it wasn't, and, yeah it yeah. wasn't overly bitter it, it, it certainly had some some nice malts going on maybe it's the kind of beer that you know you're sitting there after you've like gone surfing you got the <laughs> sex wax out and you're kind of rubbing down your board making sure I think you use that so you don't slip off your board that's is that, what I hear is that right Joel you, you <laughs> have to correct me after the fact if, I, if I'm saying it wrong but Pizza Port Brewing I've, this is a brewery that I've, I've actually been to randomly on a, on a road trip um, about 10 years ago nice. I don't remember what I had when we went there, but I definitely know that I've been fortunate enough to have a Pizza Port beer in the past. But uh, yeah, I'm glad that you and I got to enjoy this one here today on the podcast, buddy. Sure. Agreed. But that's going to do it for this episode. And if you have a listener question, if you've got a question for us, we'd love to take it. Just go to howtomoney.com slash ask for the easy instructions so that you can submit a voice memo, get it over our way, and mm-hmm. hopefully we can take it in a couple weeks. But That's right. Make sure to sign up for the newsletter if you have not yet already done that. Just head to howtomoney.com forward slash newsletter. We've got links to the newsletter and basically everything we we publish online because we want to make sure that you are getting free, fun, and helpful content, financial content delivered to your inbox every Tuesday morning. It's not over the top, you know, just once a week. Yeah. Yeah. And it's good stuff. It's helpful. And like you said, it's free. So Also, sell us your house. (laughs) (laughs) But for way less than it's worth. (laughs) Uh, All right. That's going to do it for this episode. Until next time, best friends out. Best friends out. It's brand new season two. I'm Marissa Thalberg. And I'm Stephen Wolf Bededa. And we're excited to be back having bigger, bolder, and always real conversations. Straight from the C-suite front lines of marketing, media, and more. We have great friends joining from people you may know, like Wilmer Valderrama and Bobby Burke. And people you'll want to know. So grab a coffee or, hey, even an Aperol Spritz and come join us on America's number one podcast network, iHeart. Listen to brand new on the iHeart Radio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. As the number one audio company, iHeartMedia gives you access to all. Every audience, live conversations, trusted influencers, and the insights and data you need to grow. iHeartMedia is your access company. Go to iHeartResults.com for more.
Hey, everybody. Welcome to Across Generations, where the voices of Black women unite. I'm your host, Tiffany Cross. Tiffany Cross. Join me and be a part of sisterhood, friendship, wisdom, and laughter. We gather a seasoned elder, myself as the middle generation, and a vibrant young soul for engaging intergenerational conversations, prepare to engage or hear perspectives that literally no one else has had. Listen to Across Generations podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. 